Hi folks, this is Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. Times get tougher even if they don't. Today is February the 20th, 2014. It is a Thursday. That was episode 1306 of the Survival Podcast, and I have returning guest John Pugliano from Investable Wealth that I'll be bringing on in just a moment. Before I do that, though, I want to go ahead and take care of our sponsors of the day today and our housekeeping as always. Sponsor of the day number one today, westernbotanicals.com. Hey, I'll tell you what, Western Botanicals is my go-to source for everything herbal. When I feel like I'm just a little bit sore from working a long day, they have a really great deep heating ointment that I use, and I use the turmeric-based uh, anti-inflammatory that they have. That's just one example of the things that I actually use in my regular life from Western Botanicals. They're real people that really care about you, and if you pick the phone up and call them, they'll help you out as well. And they're a great supporter of the Member Support Brigade. They have a membership program that's $50 a year. You get your first year of it for free if you're an MSB member, so that one benefit alone will uh, pay for your entire first year of the MSB. And that gives you 25% off everything they sell, and if you use them as much as I do, that's a really great benefit. Next up today, herbs of a different kind. The illustrious Chef Keith Snow with HarvestEating.com. Chef Keith will teach you to make cooking a life skill. If you don't think cooking is also a survival skill, well, I'll tell you what. You haven't ever lived on MREs for six months like I have. You become really a fan of good cooking when you have to live on mundane things. If you think about some of our long-term storables, knowing how to prepare those things in an awesome way would be a great idea if you ever need to rely on them. Plus, Chef Keith will teach you to cook seasonally and locally. And uh, has some great stuff to you know make your cooking even better. Great sauces and uh, a great assortment of herbal-based uh, seasoning mixes. My favorites being the Montreal steak, the low and slow barbecue, and the grilled chicken, though they're all really good. In fact, I use the northern Italian probably more than any of them because just about anything it works with. So check them out today, HarvestEating.com. Remember to check out his YouTube channel and his podcast. We also do have the Member Support Brigade, of course, and we have a lot of companies that offer you guys discounts in there that aren't official sponsors, far more of them than we have room for as sponsors. I mentioned one a day. Today is uh, 180 TAC, home of the 180 TAC stove, 10% off everything that they sell for MSB members. Check them out at 180TAC.com. And remember, if you are MSB, please make sure when you're buying stuff that's from guns to gardening or anything in between, you log in your MSB and check the benefits section and make sure there isn't something there that you can get a better deal on. That's why I put those deals together for you. On that note, if you're not a member yet, why aren't you a member, man? The MSB is a great deal. Support the show at 20 cents an episode and get great discounts on things you're buying anyway. And if you're buying quite a bit of stuff every year, the membership more than pays for itself. You also get videos that are available nowhere else, including our weekly-ish um, uh, MSB uh, Weekend Review that Joe and I do for you guys. There's probably a couple hours of content up just from that alone. Over $150 worth of free ebooks the day you sign up. It's a great deal. Five bucks a month or $50 a year. Military, law enforcement, Peace Corps, active duty, and prior service and first responders like EMTs, paramedics, and firefighters. All of you guys do qualify for a service discount. Email me, jack at the survivalpodcast.com is the email. Put service discount in the subject line. And I will get back to you with a discount code, assuming you do this before, not after you join. If you've already joined and you didn't get the discount, we'll have to do it on your renewal. Anyway, 
with that, I've got everything wrapped up. I do want to announce there will not be a show tomorrow. I tried to get Jeff Lawton on this week as a kind of fill-in interview, which, you know, what a great guy to have as a fill-in interview. I just could not get him uh, synced up. Uh, the fact that we are in different days, let alone different time zones, is uh, is complicating, to say the least, especially as we're leading up to an event. Uh, we may do a Q&A session with Steve at the event. I may be able to roll that into an audio and do that as a podcast and put it out for you on Friday. If, if I do, it won't be an official show. It'll just kind of be like, here's what we're doing so you guys can listen to it, or maybe some video like that or what have you. That's that's where we're at. So I've got the Battery Bank Workshop for the next couple days. That's all. As you're listening to this, uh, folks, that is happening right now. Customer service will be slowed to non-existent over the weekend for all but the most critical matters, and uh, it might be late in the day Monday before you hear back from me on anything that you need as I dig out of that hole that these events always create. But I will take care of you. It just may take a little bit longer than you're accustomed to with customer service issues. Uh, with that, I do have the housekeeping wrapped up, and I'm ready to introduce, actually re-welcome, I guess would be the term, uh, a recurring guest who uh, who's coming back for a good reason. We always love to hear from him, John Pugliano of Investable Wealth. Hey, John, man, welcome back to the Survival Podcast. Hey, Jack, uh, thanks for having me back on. It's always always a privilege. Hey, man, I love having you on. Uh, for folks that uh, maybe haven't heard any of your previous episodes, I think this is the third or fourth time we've had you on, but could you give people, uh, you know, the, the two-minute elevator speech? Who is John Pugliano? Sure. Uh, well, you know, I I don't necessarily consider myself a prepper, but I've always just been someone that's prepared, and that's that's all the way from, you know, just being a being a kid as a as a Boy Scout, and then going on and being in the military, and and just living myself my life in a very responsible way, having a 72 hour kit. You know, I kind of say I, I was a prepper before it was it was cool to be a prepper, but um, you know, I was that way because I was just raised that way. I had grandparents and parents that lived through the, the depression. They uh, they never bought anything on credit. They had gardens. They they just they were just responsible people, and they instilled that in me. And um, although the culture kind of went a different way for a number of years, I tried to stay on that path path as best as I could. And uh, and I'm glad to see that you know that's all changed here in the last uh, few years. And and you know you you've been a a major reason that people obviously in the modern survival community have. Uh, have embraced being a prepper. Um, as far as me, I've done a lot of things. I've been in the military, spent about uh, seven years active duty in the military, spent uh, 20 years in corporate America, kind of consider myself a, a late-blooming entrepreneur. Uh, I, I really didn't I didn't know that I was an entrepreneur until I was in my mid-30s, and by then I had a, a wife and a, and a lot of kids and, and uh, couldn't quit the day job, and so I waited until I was able to um, – to build up my resources where I could start a business and do it exactly the way I wanted it. I'm an investment advisor, a money manager, and um, I never wanted to go work for a, a mainstream company like that because, uh, you know, frankly, I, I don't trust them. I know what I know what your opinion is of them, Jack, and I I don't have much better of, a, of an opinion. And so when I went in that business, I wanted to do it on my own terms, and it took me, you know, 15 years to get to that point. But that's where I'm at today. Cool, man, and it's great to have you on with that that long lens perspective on things and to have you on as a financial guy that also understands the people that you're talking to because you're one of them. Um, on that note, we do have you back today to discuss inflation. Well, my lead-off question in this and understanding I'm playing devil's advocate because I pretty much know what you're going to say, but uh, 
a lot of people don't think there's inflation right now because, well, maybe they've lost money on gold, um, which I think is because you probably bought it at its high, and you can lose money on anything, inflation or not, if you buy it on its high. Um, but they look at it overall and they say, you know, the inflation index is non-existent. There's no real inflation. So, you know, where's the inflation, John? Yeah, and, and actually, you know, I'm gonna I'm gonna play devil's advocate with myself on this, Jack, too, and I'm gonna argue that there's plenty of inflation, but the reason we don't see it is because there's probably even more deflation, and that's I think the paradox that we're gonna discuss here during today's podcast. Um, but of course, you know, the government statistics they're telling us that there there isn't any inflation. We know, and I forget who it was, if it was Jack Benny or who it was, who used to used to have the joke about, you know. Who are you going to believe? Are you going to believe me or your own eyes? And I think if we if we believe what we see, we know there's inflation. Sure. Um, and and inflation is pretty much um, hy- hyperbolic in all the things that the government has actively been involved in for the last. 20, 30 years. I mean, you look at the cost of, of health care, health insurance, education, um, any of the kind of things where the government is heavily involved, heavily regulated, we, we see much more inflation there than we do in the, in the general economy. But even if we just step back, um, and everybody knows over the last five years we've seen a huge increase in food, uh, probably really over the last 10 years. Uh, a lot of that was attributed to uh, ethanol pricing and things like that, the, the amount of uh, that, that farmland has gone up. But if you just step back over the last 20 years, and I, I know there's a lot of young listeners in the TSP audience, and I kind of feel like an old man talking about, you know, when I was in school and had to walk uphill and snow both ways. But, uh, I mean, just think back to the 90s. We don't have to go all the way back to the 60s when I was, when I was a kid, but just go to the 90s. You know, a thing called the, 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 the Big Mac indicator. A lot of people like to look at that. I mean, a Big Mac in 1990 cost about $2.50. You know, today, just for the sandwich, it's, it's close to five bucks. You're looking at, at an 80, 90 percent increase. Uh, ground beef is just, you know, astronomical. And I, I know you've talked about that on the podcast before. You know, we're looking at three fifty, four dollars $4 a pound for ground beef. Uh, it used to be under a dollar in the 90s. You know, you're looking at three, 400 percent increase. And that, that's just not just food. I mean, um, something as mundane as a postage stamp. We always joke about that. We talk about how inefficient the post office is. But just in the last 20 years, we've seen a 100% increase in the cost of postage. Um, obviously, oil fluctuates. I think last time I was on the show, it was it was you know heading down to that mid $95 range. I think today it's up around 102. So that's always going to fluctuate. But post post Katrina, if you remember post Katrina, three dollar a $3 a gallon gasoline was a lot of money. You know, now it's, uh, I'm happy when I can find gasoline for $3. Um, but, you know, we're, we're looking at a, a barrel of oil, you know, about $102 a day. It was $18. And, and your younger listeners may not be able to believe that, but $18 in, ni- in the 1990s. That's how much a barrel of oil cost. So you could get gas from anywhere from a dollar to a dollar thirty cents. Dollar thirty was a high price in, in the early nineties. Mm-hmm. Like I said, today we're I lucky. I remember spending a lot of time in the mid nineties in Houston as a contractor and spending eighty nine cents to ninety two cents ish a gallon because it was so cheap in Houston. And that just sounds preposterous today. That sounds like I'm like I'm the old man going back in my day. You could get gas for eighty nine cents. Well, th- that's not that long ago. No, it isn't. It isn't. And and again, it's across the board. Everything a home. Average home price in the 90s was was just over a hundred thousand dollars, about one hundred twenty-five thousand dollars. That's up well over a hundred percent today. 
uh, with today's prices. And, and the thing with all this, people say, well, well, wages have appreciated too. And they have, but nowhere near as much. Uh, 1990 average take-home pay for a household was around 32 to 35 thousand dollars. Today we're hovering somewhere around 50 thousand dollars. It it was up, I think, around 2007, 2008, as much as 55 thousand dollars, and that's that's down. Like I say, now we're right around 50, 51 thousand dollars a year. So, you know, basically, wages have have appreciated less than much less than 50%, probably close to about 45%, and yet the cost of everything has gone up anywhere from 100 to in some cases 400%. So, inflation is alive and well. The people that are sitting back now holding on to gold waiting for hyperinflation, you know, they waited too long. They they've already lived through it. We we have the hyperinflation. It's already here. The reason we don't see it as much though as you might expect is because we are in a period of deflation. And that's really the paradox. Um, the Federal Reserve, and it's hard to talk kind of, you know, verbally on a podcast without showing this on a chart or anything. But I mean, with all the money the Federal Reserve has put in, all the deficit spending, all the buybacks that, that corporate America has done on their stock, um, we know with all that, the economy still only grew two percent last year, and they're they're predicting a three percent. This year, and they, you know, they predicted that last year we didn't hit it. So, who knows what GDP will really grow? But the fact well, of the they're mat- cheating too, right? Because they're putting things into GDP now that have no it, business it, being it there. Didn't used to be there. Yeah, there's yeah, they're putting like the promise of money next year into the GDP with like pension funds and saying like the fact that the company committed that the the, the funds will be there in 20 years, but made the commitment this year. Goes into GDP, and that sounds so. If you understand what I'm saying, it sounds preposterous. You're almost like they can't do that, but but they are. It's like uh, what was the guy in Popeye, his uh, cousin or whatever, Wimpy? I will gladly pay you on Tuesday for a hamburger on uh, today. And you're putting that nonsense into GDP. They've distorted the GDP. We know they've distorted the unemployment rate. There's a website. I think it's called Shadow Statistics or Shadow Stats. Shadow Stats. It's awesome. Yeah. Right, you know, and they talk about if we use the same, I mean, we know it's been fudged even, I always say unemployment rate is probably in the 12, 13% range, but I think a shadow stat says that if you use the same rate they used during the Depression, that we would be at like 20, 25%, which is what we had in those days as well. Well, and we have to look at, unemployment is a very, um, well, let's start out with the the consumer price index. I call it the CPI instead of the CPI because of the way they do things. Well, unemployment is very much like the, the CP lie, that there's a lot of ways to look at it, and to really understand it, you have to look at segments of it. So it's one thing to say the unemployment rate is X. Okay, but then you have to say, well, what percentage of the population is not listed in the unemployment statistics because they're never going to work and they never have worked because they're on the dole? Then you also have to say, okay, after that's done, what percentage of the population is retired and shouldn't, you know, is not considered unemployed because they're retired, you know, to Social Security or what have you. But now they're drawing from the system. And then after you do all that, then you have to start saying to yourself, well, let's look at it a totally different way. What is the unemployment rate for people under 25? And when you start looking at things like that, it starts to get damn scary about the future. Yeah, and it really distorts. Even when we talk about income, when we say, okay, income now is, say, $51,000, and that's that's average take-home per household, not per capita. So that's, in many cases, both a husband and a wife working. Um, and the reason that's really distorted, because, again, even in the 1990s, 
uh, obviously there were a lot of women in the workforce then, and you had a lot of two-income families, but you had nowhere near the two-income families that you do today, and you also didn't have the age group, like you talked about, whether it's you know people under 25 or whatever. We have a lot more older people in the workforce today, which are at their peak earnings, and so statistically, that that number should be even higher than it is. We should be, we should have a much higher um, take-home pay than fifty thousand dollars a year because of the the older the, the the percentage of people that are working are much older. So we have we have younger unemployment. We have uh, older people that should be at the peak earnings. They're not. Wages are at a fifty-year low. If you look at hourly wages uh, across the board, and I don't know about for the upper one percent. They always say there's a disparity in income. I'm not going to go there, but if you just look at Average earnings, they're at a 50-year low, and, and that gets back to again, you know, me talking like an old guy. And my my father, in 1960, I don't know, made something like $5,000 a year. He lived extremely well on $5,000 a year. Yeah, yeah. My, I remember my father telling me he made about $12 an hour working road construction in the early 70s, and they were getting a lot of overtime. And when you look into that, a guy working road construction in '72 was making more money than a lot of doctors are today. Yep. And that's that's shocking if you really think about that. Yeah. And, what it costs you to get a medical degree. Yeah, exactly. Without I was gonna say make making that kind of money without a student loan and, and you know and the sad thing is that obviously we have all these young kids out there getting buried in student loan debt and they're and they're not even getting a medical degree. They're getting, you know, a, a degree in English or something. Which is, uh, which is, again, further driving up education. The, the, the reason we see such an increase in the cost of education is specifically because the government has been you know, drastically intervening in, in secondary education and, and pumping up the cost of it. Um, and, you know, that takes us all back to the, to the Federal Reserve. We talked about uh, unemployment rates and things. And the, the mandate of the Federal Reserve, they supposedly have a dual mandate of, um, you know, maximum, unemplo- maximum employment, you know, what, whatever that you know, some arbitrary number they set for that, and then um, supposedly stable prices, but they don't really don't say that anymore. Now they just say, you know, maintaining inflation. They want to keep somewhere around a 2% inflation rate. And you have to ask yourself, you know, even with that, well, well why is that? I mean, even at 2% inflation rate, prices are going to double every 36 years or so. Um, and we all know that superficially they want that because they're borrowers and that um, – helps them pay down the debt or work out of the debt and, and things like that. But I, I think it's really even more sinister than that. If you look at if you look at the intended as well as the unintended consequences of their policy, I mean just in the last six years, if we go we've been talking about the way prices have gone up. If you look at the the, the flip side, the deflation side on things that have gone down, if you were a saver in nineteen ninety and you had a million dollars, obviously a million dollars and purchasing power went a lot farther in 1990 than it would go today, but the earnings potential for that was extremely high, much higher than it is today. Interest rates in 1990 were somewhere six, six and a half percent, six point six percent. I think they they might have peaked that in in the 90s. So if you had a million dollars and you were invested in a 10-year Treasury bill, which would be a 10-year Treasury note, which would be the you know, basically the safest thing you can invest in. You can argue, okay, you're going to lose. Your only your only loss there would be inflationary pressures. But the, if the government defaults, you're going to get your money because we know that's they're still going to print more. It's not like investing in an emerging market or something. It's it's basically as as 
good it's as you're going to get. It's cash. It's ten, cash ten-year treasury is going to yeah. be is going to be cash. So if you had a million dollars, you could be generating sixty to sixty-six thousand dollars a year in 1990, and that's at a time when we talked about the the take-home pay. You could pay. live good on sixty thousand. Yeah, but it's, it, it, it was twice the average take-home pay. The average guy's making thirty, thirty-five thousand. You're making sixty, sixty-five thousand for just having your money at zero risk. That's in 1990. Today, you fast forward today, that million dollars obviously is not going to buy you anywhere near what it did then. And um, interest rates today, 2.7% on a 10-year. You're making so now I'm going to make 27 grand a year on my million. And, and, and the average take-home pay is 51. So you're, you're, half, you're half of what the take-home pay was when you used to be twice what it was. It's, so it's, now to live like a retired millionaire... I need to be worth about two point seven million dollars if I do the math that way. Yeah, exactly. Well over two. Well over two million. No, actually, it's much more than that because two million gets me back to par. Gets you back to where I got to have about four point seven million to yep. live like a millionaire would have in um, nineteen ninety yep. on 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 your safe interest uh, off of bonds. Yeah, and and that's you know when people say is that an intended or an unintended consequence of the federal reserve policy you know i don't know which way it is but what i do know is that they know that that's happened they know that they've been stealing from savers from people on fixed incomes uh from older americans and they don't it's care it's a hidden no, tax john i mean that's what it comes down to it's actually the most insidious tax the government imposes because they don't just impose it on income and they don't just impose it on property. They impose it really on everything. It's easiest to measure with money, but it really affects every single thing in your life. And if I pay income tax, it works this way. I have $100. I invest it. I make $110. I pay tax on 10 bucks. My inflation tax is not on $10. My inflation tax is on the entire $110. And, and when you start thinking about that way, you start to realize how bad it is. By the way, I don't know if you saw this. This came out this week. You were talking about the student loans. Student loans are now over $1.08 trillion, and the delinquency rate is higher than it's ever been in history, 11.8%. Right now, student loans are delinquent at $124.3 billion. Yeah, student student loans will be the next big uh, shoe to drop, and uh, I don't know if it's going to be student loans or commercial real estate that that perpetuates the next collapse. But that's kind of where my my bet is. That um, of course, student loans are pretty much all backed by the government, so yeah. it won't be a, it won't be a bank li- liquidity issue, but it'll be another couple trillion tacked onto our our seventeen trillion. Now, I'm glad you I'm glad you brought up a couple things there with taxes and and the. Um, um, Delinquency rate. You know, the other thing that came out this week is they were all thrilled that the uh, mortgage delinquency rate is down to four percent. Well, you know, everybody lost their house already. <laughs> well, that yeah, that that and but you know, again, you you look at the historical fact of it. You go back to like pre two thousand maybe four, and you go back for thirty years, the delinquency rate was like two percent, under two percent, and 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 we're happy to be twice that now. Um, we we've got a long way to we've got a long way to go with that and and again that comes back to are we in a deflationary cycle or an inflationary cycle the country went broke in 2008 i mean the bottom fell out we definitely were in a recession the fed had to come in and prop up real estate uh properties by 
by this first the stimulus and then the, all the QE one twos and threes, the twist program and everything they've done, and even with their easing program now, with their um, they're obviously still putting six sixty five. 65 billion in a month, and, and people don't realize that. I mean, what 65 billion even means? I, I you start looking at uh, what somebody, you know, the, the market capitalization of a, of a company like, uh, um, you know, Apple or something. And it, it, they're just they're they're creating apples every month type thing. I mean, it's just yeah. phenomenal how much money that really is. And the 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 you know again, it goes back to that. So did they do that for the benefit of all of us, so that our housing prices yeah let me, would, let me would hold, be better let me hold you there just for a second well the, the market cap on Apple is four hundred and eighty billion, so they're not quite doing that, but every ten months they are, so it's like every ten months a new Apple computer is being created created yeah it's, it's, I think it it's, doesn't exist that, think, that's that's preposterous. I think when I did the math a, a month or so ago, it was four Teslas. If you take the market cap of Tesla, uh, which is astronomically. Insane, but there's something like they're creating like four of those a month, um, and and you know again with all that we're still seeing not even two percent growth in the economy the way they they gerrymander it. Uh, but when I see this, I ask myself, so why are they doing this? You know why? You know again are they doing that even again just just so that we don't default, so that our houses are are a decent uh, price, and are they doing it to help the economy? We have to, we have to remember that the Federal Reserve. It's, it's the banking system, and you know, do they really? Is there dual mandate to really care about employment? Do they really? Does someone in Washington really care if we have a job, or someone at the New York Fed? Do they care if you know Jack Spirico has a job? Do they care if prices are stable for you? I would say they don't care. I would they say they just care about making sure the money doesn't lose all its value. As long as the money has value. Their guys can play games with it. Yeah, and that's and that's only because they control the money, right? If they didn't control the money, they wouldn't even care about that. No. So so all they all they care about is that their banks are liquid and that they're able to make money. And banks, uh, you know, if you take Goldman Sachs and the investment bankers out of it, I mean, the other banks, the vast ninety percent or more of the banks make money on the spread of lending, right? They they borrow they borrow at low interest rates short term and they loan at lo- at uh, long term at higher interest rates and they make money on that spread and that's been dras- drastically distorted since 2007 they had to come in reinflate real estate so that all the banks didn't go under and then now i believe they're in the process of of equalizing that so that they can get the interest rates back up to a level where there's a spread where Again, the banks can be very profitable. You know, now, now that they got the liquidity back up, they got the, the reserves in place. They need to go to where they can be profitable on the on the spread. So we'll see probably higher interest rates. Uh, again, low interest rates for us that are that are borrowing at one year, five years, but uh, higher interest rates for those that are that are borrowing at twenty and thirty years. Yeah, yeah. I don't think a lot of people realize what banks actually do is sell money into existence. And and the higher up the chain you are, the less you pay for your money. And if you're all the way at the top of the chain, you actually don't pay anything for your money. People buy money into existence for you. It, it's a hard thing for people to understand because most people just don't even understand monetary creation. And I can't remember who said this, but somebody said about the way we create money today, because it's not really fiat. Fiat is bad, but fiat would be the government just says, here's the money, it has value. We actually have the money backed by debt. And somebody said... The process of monetary creation is so simply absurd that it repels the mind and seems complicated. Right. It's, it's, mean, an, it's an illusion. Yeah. 
It, it, but it's so simple, really. You know, we just we take a bond, and then we buy it with nothing by making a deposit, and now money exists. Or in fractional reserve lending, ten, ten times you, money you come exists. to buy a house for me, right? I'm the bank of Jack. You want to buy John's house, so you know you want to build John's house. So you come to me and say, Jack, I want to borrow money from you. And I say, how much are you going to put in this house? You say, big house, man, half a million dollars. And I say, okay, I want a down payment of a hundred grand, uh, and then I'll give you four hundred thousand dollars. And you say, okay, you give me a hundred thousand dollars, you pay a hundred thousand dollars to your contractor yourself, so you've got equity in the home. And then I come back and I I, I deposit into an account for you four hundred thousand dollars to build the house. Now, what people think I've done is taken four hundred thousand dollars of my depositor's money and held a ten percent reserve against it and given you the four hundred thousand dollars. But that's not what I've done. I've actually created $400,000 with a journal entry, and I've used you to do it. I've created the money based on your promise to pay me back plus interest. I haven't used any of my depositors' money at all. I've used those as a reserve. So if, it's not like the bank has a million dollars to make it easy to understand. They loan out $900,000. They have a million dollars. They actually loan out $10 million and hold the million as a reserve. It, 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 people don't believe it when you explain it that way, but Man, you go to the Federal Reserve's website and read it. That's what they do. And then you wonder why you have inflation and deflation at the same time. When they start playing games with that, you know, it all matters what the sector is as to whether you see inflation or deflation in it. Yep. Yeah, and that, and that sector that you mentioned, too, is where we see what I think is the, the unintended consequence of the collateral damage of the stock market going up along with they had to, they had to reinflate the housing bubble to get the banks liquid again. They really didn't care if the stock market went up. I really, I really believe they, they didn't care less. It was a byproduct. And whether, again, whether it was intended or unintended, it doesn't matter. But they had, they had to inflate real estate pricing. Um, as a consequence, though, we have seen the stock market boom in the last two years and in the last year in particular. Um, and so people were saying, well, you know, they're really not going to taper or they're going to they're gonna taper the taper you know, because they don't want the stock market to implode. And again, I would argue, do they? Do they really care? Does Janet Yellen, you know, Ben Bernanke, he's gone now. Do they really care if the stock market implodes? If they didn't care that they were stealing all the wealth from older, the older generation and all the people that were savers, if they didn't care about that, why would they care that they're stealing money from the stock market? You know, you get back to, again, these the banks, the banks in and of themselves, and you take out the investment banks and the the Morgan Stanleys and, and Goldman Sachs, take those guys out of the equation. The 90% of the banks do not trade in the stock market. They, they're making their money on, on, on the spread on loans for the most part, loaning to the government, loaning to consumers, corporate debt. They, you know, as, as long as the system stays afloat, they don't care really where the Dow, the Dow Jones Industrial Average is, right? They don't care if it's up. They don't care if it's down. They just care that they can keep – the people have enough liquidity – to pay, you know, to, to pay their mortgages, and so that's why I tell people to be careful. Don't don't think that they wouldn't crash the stock market. Oh, they're going to. That's the plan. I've, I've been saying that for years that they're going to make a ton of money on the way up, and they're going to make a ton of money on the way down, and they're going to really quietly exit the back door when the thing collapses. And then they'll, you know, their plan is now whether they can push it back up again is to once they've destroyed it, to buy it all back up at the bottom again, the scraps, after all the grandmas freak out and bail, to buy all the stock on the sheep and run it up again. This is what they do over and over and over again. And this time they've set 
a trap to push money into U.S. Treasuries when this happens because they've gone into all the 401ks, as we've talked about before, and they have taken the cash option, like the, the money funds, out of the 401ks, and the safe option inside a 401k is now U.S. bonds. So they know full well on all sides of this kind of quasi neo-fascist economic system that when people run, the people that are not in you know IRAs that have full control, all that money, that institutional money that's inside of corporation retirement accounts, the only place those people can go when they freak out, and oh, they will, is going to be straight into U.S. bonds. So that helps them turn the debt over yet again. Yes, and, and that's one of the reasons the interest rates have been low since, so low since 2008, 2009, is not only obviously the Federal Reserve has pumped all the money in, but the, these last uh, four years prior to this year, the, the preceding four years, uh, you know, biggest inflow into bonds that, that we'd ever seen. And, um, and all, that, all that dumb money has come out last year, gone into the markets, uh, if you look at these small little corrections we've had here in the last eight weeks, uh, every time the market goes down, it's gone down in higher volume than it's consequently gone back up in. So, so basically, you have, you have more institutional investors getting out as these retail investors are getting back into the market. They're cashing in their bonds. They're getting into the market. And I do. I think they're, I think they're setting it up for I, – I, I've thought for a while now that they, they – they, we were going to see a 10, 15% correction going back to at least May of last year. We haven't yeah. seen it. We haven't seen one more than 6 or 7% in the last 18 months. I, I don't think you're going to see it this year. I, I really don't. And I, it, this is the weird thing. I can't tell you why I believe that. Usually when I say something about a market, I, I really know why I believe it. I have this, this feeling, this gut feeling on this market this year that they're going to prop this damn thing up all the way through the year. If you do see it, You'll see it come on the heels of consumer weakness going into the Christmas season at the end of the year. Yeah, after the election. It's an election year. Yeah, yeah. It's, 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 if it happens, it will be after the elections. But I kind of see it going into next year, early next year, when all of the, the data comes through of how crappy the, the, you know, like we thought they were bad, but they're worse than we thought. And people start really like going through this so many times. What you just see is the consumer more and more tightening up their spending. And every business that deals at the consumer level, especially in moderately priced goods, is seeing this. And you see the inflation in food in weird ways starting to happen more and more. My wife and I, you know, we don't eat a lot of chips or anything like that. But when we have guests, we have stuff for them because, you know, guests like it. And we, you know, so we don't pay attention. And we usually buy chips and stuff like that at Costco and Great Big Bags. So we picked some stuff up recently in uh, the supermarket, we're like, the freaking bag is like barely bigger now than what you used to put in a lunch, right? So they, they, they have the same price, but they've shrunk the packaging. And, and you can only play that game so many times in so many places before the entire business sector really starts to hurt. Yeah, and that's, that's why we continue. Even as corporate profits supposedly keep going up, we continue to see either flat or very little appreciation in, in top-line sales and revenue. And, you, you know, they say, well, that's because corporate Americas, they've been able to, you know, streamline their businesses. They, and I'm sure we talked about in, incomes are down, and that's the majority of their cost would be, in, particularly in a, in a service-based U.S. economy, majority of their cost is going to be wages. Uh, so wages aren't going up. They are able to take costs out. They've gotten rid of a lot of workers. 
But at some point, you have to sell more. There has to be growth. And that gets back into this deflationary spiral that we're in. Um, demographics are against us. And, and I'm, not, I'm not a proponent of – whenever I say that, people always say, oh, have you read Harry Dent's new book? Um, you know, I, I followed Harry for the last, I don't know, 20, 30 years. Um, I, think he's, I think he's been right on on his forecasts of, of declining demographics. And what I mean by that for the listeners that aren't familiar with Harry Dent, um, you know, he's, he's been saying for, for the last, I don't know, 30 years about the, about the baby boom. We, we, we don't have enough people uh, to, to replace the baby boom. Um, and it's not just a U.S. phenomenon. It's, it's all around the world. J- Japan's been 10 or 15 years ahead of everybody else. It's not just the Western world. It's, it's even China. Um, although uh, I know China's a superpower. I, I, I kind of like the saying that says China's going to get old before China gets rich. They just, they've had the one child policy for too long. They don't have enough young workers coming up. Um, without without the, the demographic growth, without a continuation of young people coming behind the older people to buy their houses, um, you know, to, to pay the Social Security taxes that, that pays for Medicare and Medicaid and things, we, we're going to have maybe, maybe not a declining economy, but certainly not a growing economy. And this whole facade of economy is, is built on you know, superficial growth. And that's, that's why we're also seeing this, this deflationary trend. But, you, know, have, you don't have enough younger people, and the younger people aren't making anywhere near the money they would have made 20 years ago. Well, and, and here's another thing that compounds it. And it's not like I want to push people out of the workplace, but people are retiring older and older. And if you think about it, like we used, remember you used to play a game when you were a little kid at birthday parties where everybody, I don't remember what you called it, but everybody walked around a bunch of chairs and there was always one less chair than butts. Yeah. And when the music musical stopped, chairs, musical chairs, right? And when the music stopped, everybody had to sit down. Well, there was always one butt without a seat. And that was the person that got knocked out. And then you took another chair away. Well, what we're getting to now is we're like, it's almost like taking like five or six of the chairs away. So when I don't retire and I don't leave the workforce, a job doesn't open up. Not that as a senior employee, you as a young worker would be taking my job, but what happens in most organizations that promote from within? The guy that was under me takes my job, another guy, and my leaving eventually moves enough forward that we open kind of the floodgates at the bottom for a new worker. Well, that's not happening. Right. Yep, it's, it's, it's not working, and, and, and because not only are the, you know, again, the, the older people not leaving because they need the income, and, you know, and, and the good part, too, is they're healthy and they, they do have a quality of life where they're able, able to work, which is good. Um, we also see the side where technology is replacing more and more people, and we talked about this last time I was on. If they go through and push the minimum wage up higher and make it whatever they want to make it, they can make it $12, they can make it $15 an hour. Burger King and McDonald's and all these other companies that, that hire all these minimum wage workers, they're going to find a way to replace them with some kind of automation or they'll just uh, hire some kind of robot. Because when, when, when labor's affordable and you go into a McDonald's, there's more employees there than they really need. They always because it's a it's a low-level job, right? They, they always have a few extra bodies. Well, then it makes it real easy to start cutting them, and then they start cutting the people that had full-time jobs. Because, and I'll tell you something else that you're starting to see. And this is, I don't begrudge anybody that wants to work. Uh, I wish more people would. But you know, occasionally when we travel, we actually go to a place like McDonald's or what have you. 
And I'm seeing more and more 40-year-olds working at McDonald's. And, again, I'm not putting you down for it, but I'm not talking about managers. I'm talking like fry guys, right? Right, right. I was the fry guy at Burger King when I was 14. And for a 40-year-old to have to take that job, again, nothing against them. But, boy, that says something about the economy we're living in. When I worked at Burger it was my first job. I think I lasted like two weeks, and I quit. Uh, it was just a horrible, horrible place to be for a 14-year-old kid. But it was all teenage kids. It was all kids I went to high school with. There were like two genuine adults in the whole restaurant, and they were management. And everybody else was a kid. Now, especially if you get outside of the cities, Right. I don't really know. I don't think I've been to a McDonald's in Dallas, Fort Worth forever. So it's like one of those things like you break down and like I'll grab a coffee and a biscuit since we're on the road. And you get out into places like Tyler and stuff like that where it's smaller towns. And the staff is almost 100 percent middle aged adults. And that should scare people. Again, not that those people are willing to work. God bless that they're willing to work. But. That they that is that is what they're left with, right? Yep, and and that's that's also why we see less uh, immigration, particularly from Mexico and things. The immigra- illegal immigrants coming in is because again those those jobs had been all teenagers. A lot of them had also been um, lower skilled immigrants that came into the country, and and now we're seeing middle aged regular Americans with those jobs, and and the, you know they're forcing out the uh, the the you know Hispanics that would be coming in in with low skill. Yeah, because all of a sudden the, the story that no American will do that job for that money isn't true anymore. Exactly. They're, they're and, and now the immigrants are, are left with the jobs it. that are really crappy. Like if you've ever looked at what it's like to pick oranges at an orange plantation in Florida, it is one of the most brutal things a human being could be asked to do. And that's what the migrant workers left with at this point because that's the one thing that Americans still won't do yet. But you'll see it. I mean, it'll happen. Because it, it, as more and more jobs are not there, they can only put so many people on these support systems, these government support systems. There is a breaking point to that as well. You can't just do that forever. There has to be enough workers to support non-workers. And, and, and that, we're, we're about as lopsided, I think, as we can go in that right now. Yeah, yeah the gap between the, the uh, substance income that the government supplies for welfare, food stamps, you know, whatever, child WIC programs, things like that, yeah. it's... Uh, it's um, it's it's gotten to the point where, again, as as much as much of that aid is there, there's still not enough to to keep the 50 year old well, American that used to have a fifty thousand dollar year job who got laid off. He can't he can't leave. He's had too good of a lifestyle to live off of twenty thousand dollars in food stamps and, and he, he own, maybe owns his own home or he owns enough uh, um, uh, he has enough equity in his home that he's not going to leave it so he, he wouldn't qualify for section 8 housing and stuff like that so yeah. he's he can't afford to live on the generous subsistence levels not and I don't want to say generous cuz I they're not generous but they're, they're slave wages he, he can't afford to live on the government slave wages of unemployment and things uh, but he also can't get a better job and so he him and his wife are working two jobs at McDonald's yeah yeah. And, that, and they at least they get, at least for now they can get that job. But like you said, with minimum wage regulation and all, they're, they'll cut that. Um, I, they, I know grown men working two or three jobs, and they're like delivering pizzas at night, uh, working in you know uh, a manufacturing job, 
but as a part-time laborer in the daytime and then maybe picking up, you know, some some private contract work as a handyman. And that's how they're making a living. And those people don't count to that unemployment index. But they are what you would call underemployed. They're people with real skills. They're not bums and they're not uneducated idiots. They are people with real skills that qualify for a job and the job is just not there. Right. And, and the jobs are not going to be there with with Obamacare and the mandates and and you know working thirty hours, all the requirements of you know fifty or more employees you have to have benefits. It's going to get worse. We're and we're going to see more automation. We're going to see either the closing of businesses or or the need for less workers. Or or, or as you're talking about, one worker doing three or four different jobs just just to come up with a fifty sixty hour work week. And it's this whole overcapacity thing and. You know, it gets back to, too, do we, do we have, you know, and this is a value question, I mean, but do we have too many Burger Kings? Do we have too many McDonald's? How many how many different fast food places can you go out and get a sure. hamburger, you know? Uh, and, it's, and it's not just those restaurants. It's across the board. I was in a small regional grocery store the other day. It wasn't a big, you know, super Walmart kind of place. Uh, it wasn't a big chain. It was just a small, little, dinky, small town grocery store. And I was walking down one of the aisles, and the the bottled where they had the bottled water, there were I counted I, I just kind of had to stop and I because I was blown away that that small of a store had so many. There were a dozen brands of bottled water, and that, and I'm not talking different sizes. I mean specific. No, I know what you mean. Specific brands. Epson, Cloud, this, yep, yep. H2 that, and, and, Ozarka, and, yeah. And not and not even flavored water or sparkling water, uh-huh. just just plain old tap water that someone put in a bottle. Right there was a dozen brands, and then when you break it down into twelve packs, six packs, plastic, glass, flip top opening, I mean all that kind of stuff, it was an entire shelf. Well, and think about the size of that industry, John, and how long is it before a consumer that's going broke stops paying a dollar a bottle for water? Yeah, how long is that going to last? When he's got it coming out of his sink for a penny a gallon. How long is that going to last? How many retail establishments are there out there like, you know, Best Buy, Barnes & Noble, uh, JCPenney, Sears, uh, Kmart? I mean, there are – obviously the retail business isn't going to go away, but all those names I just mentioned, those people don't have a market. No, I mean, there's, there's, no. There's, there's, there's still going to be Target and, and Walmart, and there's yeah. still going to be Macy's. And, uh, of course, there'll be the high-end stuff. You don't see that many DVDs anymore, but in another year or two, you won't see any at all. Books are about done. Um, one of the most telling things for me, and I, I was calling the end of bookstores back in 2011, and people were like, Dad, no, people like books. They like the way they feel. You know, and I've got books all over my house. Well, first of all, I don't have to go to the store to get a book anymore. So at least the retail establishments are, oh, they're nice, and people like to go there and look at books. And So I actually like bookstores. I mean, I'm not happy about this prediction being right. So we went to a place called the Highlands, which is like shopping hell for men. Men do not want to be there, especially at Christmas time. While my, my wife and I had come back to Texas when we were living outside of the state for a while, and my one solace was, well, there was a giant Barnes & Noble bookstore in this huge new shopping center, right? So this was like, this is one of these things where they try to make it look like a small town and all the stores are separated and there's there's money in this place and it's like 20 acres that there's, that's being developed in the stores. If it was going to, it was going to succeed anywhere, it was going to succeed here. So my plan was I'll slip off, the girls can go shop, I'll curl up in one of those big fluffy chairs, I'll buy a coffee, I'll find some books, maybe I'll even buy one, but I'll sit there and 
I'll enjoy myself while they shop. Guess what it said when I got there? Closed, coming soon, the container store. That store hadn't been open for a year. It was already closed. And I thought about the fact that the last three times I was in a bookstore and bought a book, I didn't buy from the bookstore. I'd be in the bookstore, I'd find the book, I'd look at the book, and go, I want this book. And I'd think to myself, I wonder if that book's available on Kindle. I'd pick up my iPhone. Oh, it's on Kindle. Boom. I just bought it for half price. It's on my phone now. Put the book down and walk away. You can't run that business in this new model. No, no. And, and even most of these real retailers, uh, I, shoot, I, I don't buy anything anymore almost unless it's – I have Amazon Prime. I buy yep. almost everything on Amazon. I buy my dog food, 45-pound bag of dog food, Amazon Prime. The UPS man carries it out. My dog loves him. He loves the UPS man because he brings his dog food. Dog food. I mean, you can get everything there. I never um, thought of dog food, John. I'm, I'm, I'm searching it right now because that's always a pain in the butt when you go to the you store. Know, the big, I don't know what the statistic is now, but a few years ago, the, the largest retailer of diapers was Amazon. And if you think about it, and that kind of stuff makes sense. Grandparents buying diapers for their grandkids in, in another state, you know. And having it shipped. Nearby, they have it shipped. The mother doesn't have to go out to the store. They're big. They're bulky. They don't, they, they, they yeah, don't get bulky, the but they don't break anything. Space in your cart. Yeah. It could be for food. That's the thing about dog food. You're always trying to shove it under the cart and all. Right. Yeah, I see this. I don't need to be buying it at the store anymore. Get that stuff on Amazon and so, you know, so the question is, how long are all these retailers going to stay in business? Because we, we have a changing economic model. Having said that, too, you look at Amazon sales last quarter, and they were up, but they weren't uh, – directionally, they weren't up as much. The, the rate of increase in growth was down for the, for the fourth quarter of the Christmas season last year for Amazon. So to your earlier point about consumers may not have the money, I, I think that's definitely the case. I think we have way over capacity in all these retail stores. That's why I think even though the Fed has been able to prop up – Retail or has been able to to prop up um, residential real estate. I think if if the shoe drops on the on the uh, commercial side of real estate, that could be a real problem. And no matter what they do with interest rates, it's not going to matter. All these shopping malls, all these strip malls that you know, there's only so many um, you know nail places you can put in there, or, or you know tanning tanning salons and stuff. It's uh, these are these are big properties. They're they're heavily indebted with a lot of leverage. Uh, they're, they're not going to have the income to pay for it. That's just the U.S. economy. You look at the emerging markets. You know, I've, I've been to Asia. I haven't been to China in you know, probably about a year and a half uh, now. But uh, in my many travels over there, the, I've thought for years that place is a house of cards. It's going to fall down just in terms of, again, not that they're not a powerhouse, but they have expanded and built so much capacity Half of it's state-owned. The other half that isn't state-owned still isn't profitable because it's all under the table. It's it's uh, it's just a big scheme, and th they're making a lot of products that potentially there's no market for. And again, it's all been paid for with with in investment that that you know leveraged investment. It's not it's not stuff that's been paid off. That shoe could drop. I don't know what's going to precipitate the next crash. But I do think we're going to have one. And having said that, I will say, you know, I am in the market. I'm 100% in the market right now. I've been in for the last two weeks, I guess, now. So I got, started getting in two weeks ago. I got in uh, between – I got out at Christmas and New Year's. I got out, and I got back in, started getting back in two weeks ago, and over a three- or four-day period, it got all back in. Um, but, I, you know, I have my finger on the pedal, any, on the switch any day to, to get back out. If, I, if it looks like it turned around, the – you know, and to your point, it's not to say that we couldn't go up. I mean, some people are calling for you know 13% growth again this year in the stock market. It is an election year, but it is very fragile. And just like we've seen these other collapses, people need to be 
cautious um, of what can happen and know that it can it can collapse quickly because it, we are in this inflation deflation paradox and I, and I think that takes us back to the, the ultimate question that we kind of start out with is if there is all this inflation or even if there's deflation why is the price of gold you know why, why did I lose all my money in gold why have I lost thirty or forty percent in gold and as you mentioned they probably bought it at the wrong price that's yeah yeah that I mean because gold is not down. Gold is not down. Gold is down off its high. Gold is not down as its trend over the last 20 years at all. Right. Gold is actually telling you the truth about inflation right now. The fact that you bought it like when everybody freaked out and already bought before you does not mean it went down. It means you bought it. You paid too much. Yeah, if you bought gold. I, I hate to tell people that, but that's what it comes to. It's just like the people that bought silver at like $42 or whatever during a panic. You don't buy in a panic. You want to sell in a panic. Like when people are panicking, you want to be selling. It, yeah. it, it's the it's the time to sell because when the panic's over, it, it, I love when people say, "Well, I'm holding silver for the long term." Okay, well, in the panic, sell it, and when the panic's over, buy it back, and you'll have more. And that, they, people say, "Well, that's trading," and I'm like, "You bet your ass it is. Yeah. It's not day trading. It's not you know." frequent trading it's the, the 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 sign is on the door it's blinking this is about to go sideways yeah. and when when you're looking at a metal sitting at three times what it was a couple months before and you don't see the end of the world as we know it coming because it wasn't going to happen then then you know that that's not sustainable and it, it could be corn it could be soybeans it could be pig bellies it could be the dollar, it could be bonds, it could be uh, Bitcoin, it could be anything. It, it, it could be a good-looking girl at the bar. I mean, <laughs> yeah, how many drinks got a bar? I guess exactly. Yeah, yeah. You know, it doesn't it's supp- matter. It's supply demand. When 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 the supply is out of whack with the historical norms, you have to be careful. Anybody that bought gold in 2011, and isn't you shouldn't have necessarily bought in 2011. You just shouldn't have bought it all in 2011, right? Maybe you were dollar cost averaging, and in 2011 that would have been okay. But yeah. if you took your whole life savings, and you, you just if you just lost, if in 2009 you just lost 40 percent in the stock market, and you took that 60 percent oh, you have left really and, yeah. and, and put it into gold. Then by 2012, you just lost 30 more percent of that. And and what people need to understand is that there is this fluctuation you're talking about. I mean, every time I talk about buy and hold is for the birds, people people go off on me. I mean, even if you look at your own your own forum, well, I mean, Dave Ramsey says to do it. He's got to be right. He's on the radio. I got the most hate mail from many of the shows I've done with you when I talked about the buy and hold because yeah. it, it it's a fallacy. And people love to quote, you know, what Warren Buffett says, you know, his hold favorite holding. Periods forever. Warren Buffett also says, I mean, you just paraphrase what Warren Buffett's famous quote is, is uh, buy when people are fearful and sell when people are greedy. Well, that yep. doesn't that doesn't sound like buying Somebody hold to me. Somebody holding long term. Yeah. yeah. The guy invested like $9 billion in silver, and he dumped his freaking silver when the market went up, you know? And, yep. and he publicized he was buying silver. Gee, what a nice guy, right? So he's like, well, Buffett's buying it. Maybe I should buy some, too. So you drive it up, he exits his position. And even when they're – see, this is what people don't get. These level of investors like that, they're telling you one thing and they're doing another. And even when it looks like they're doing what they say they do, they're not. Because while he's sitting there holding the underlying investment through the ups and downs, he's trading options on the back side of that thing left and right and left and right. And when you trade options in certain ways, and you know this, it's like being, it's like being the insurance company – 
and somebody writes you a, a check for the premium on the insurance, and if the if the policy doesn't need to be cashed in at the end of six months, you just keep the money. I, and I think a lot you can get. Don't take this as Jack and John telling you to go out and start options trading because you really better know what you're doing then. But the reality is, these guys that are running these top level markets, that's exactly what they're doing. They're they're buying and they're selling stock without ever touching it. Right. Yeah. If you if you look at my website um, where I have my blog, you'll see one of my earlier posts uh, talks about using a put to protect a gold position, a, a an ETF gold position in two thousand November two thousand twelve through April of two thousand thirteen. There's there's something that, and again, we're not telling people to go out and do that. The not only average investor, even the intelligent investor has a hard time making money with options. But there is some charts and some things you can see on my website that talks about how uh, how you could have protected a position. You could have lost two percent instead of losing thirty percent if you'd have, if you'd have used a protective put. Um, so what people need to really realize, though, is again, 2011, gold was up. It wasn't actually at its highest point. Inflation adjusted. Uh, 1990, I think, was the was the although it only hit $830 or something in that time, real dollar value it was significantly higher than than gold got to in 2011 um, at around uh, what was eight, eight, 18 something 1800 uh, an ounce. But people have to be aware that that because we hit that doesn't mean we won't surpass it, but it yeah. also doesn't mean that we may be down for quite a while. I like to look at the ratio of of gold to oil and. And all these ratios, um, I don't put a lot of. I, I use how do I say this? I use I use ratios. I use historic data. I use these kind of things, but I don't put um, like like my faith in you know the money. It says you know trust in you know uh, was it tr- um, in God we trust, right? So my my faith is in God, right? It's not in the money system. <laughs> um, I don't have faith in in these in these algorithms and these systems, but I do use them as a guidepost. They, and they all work until they don't. You know, these high-frequency traders and stuff, they all say, oh, yeah. we have a secret algorithm, and, and we back-tested it, and it works through 180 years and blah, blah. Yeah, it, well, it did 180 years, but it doesn't mean it's going to work tomorrow because they all work until they don't. So, <laughs> so I'm not saying that this is a hard and fast rule, but there has been a pretty good relationship of gold to the price of oil of 15 times. So 15 times the barrel, the price of a barrel of oil roughly equates to the, the, um, the price of gold in an ounce. So uh, $100, an oil, $100 a barrel oil, $1,500 gold. That's a rough estimate. Sometimes it's 11 times, sometimes it's 16 times, whatever. It's like a PE on the on the S&P 500. You know, what is it? Well, the average is about 15. Who knows what it's going to be tomorrow? But if you just use that as a rough guideline, and, and you know, if someone would have used that in 2011 and they would have saw the price of oil and they would have saw gold at, at you know, $1,820, they would have known that that was the time to be selling, not buying. Because although that ratio could have been wrong, it 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 still was you know maybe eighty percent accurate and and that's all you're hoping for you're just you're playing you're playing statistics here hoping that you're not the last you know, you talked about the musical chairs you don't want to be the guy left with no chairs and so you have to use these historical norms and, and you know where that puts us today um, you know gold is up I don't know three four percent from where it was uh, before Christmas back in October November it was much lower everybody was saying it was crashing and to your point everybody was Soros and all these guys they're all getting out uh, I think. Um, Goldman Sachs said, "Oh, gold's going to collapse." Now, if you if you read the latest stuff, everybody's saying, "Oh, we're we're in a rally again." Yeah. Um, and 
the mar- the market is forward looking the market is always looking at least 6 months ahead all these yeah. all these announcements that come out are 90 days behind so when Warren Buffett or George Soros or uh, John Paulson whoever whenever they release whatever their holdings are whenever a mutual fund tells they you what what they're in exactly. it's all 90 days back so, so if you emulate what they're doing, you're emulating what they did, not what they're doing. You're, exactly. Emulating what they did you know, three months back, want, and, and the market's looking six months ahead. So you're nine months. There's a nine-month disparity. Yeah, yeah. And I think another thing people don't understand, when they start talking about these these uh, gold crashing or whatever, when you take a commodity that was held back falsely for years and years, like gold was, gold did not appreciate slowly. It went a big run-up at the end because all of a sudden everybody actually realized how undervalued it was. When that commodity blows through uh, to a high and goes to a point where it's un- now it's, it's, it's overvalued, it will start to come back down and it will find a floor where the new reality of the value is, where people go, this is, th- th- like, no matter what, whenever it hits here, I'm buying and that, if you see a strong floor where, where any commodity or any stock starts bouncing off that floor over and over and over again, well, crash means it's going to go down 20%. But if that floor is, is below that 20%, it's not a crash. That's just a correction. And it's hard to think that way because you hear it all the time You know, with Bitcoin. Bitcoin's crashing. Well, it went down 80 bucks. It didn't crash, right? It, 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 it's, it's widely fluctuating. Of course, it moves around. We all know this. It's not crashing. And, and, and people use that terminology and don't think that these people that are making tons of money off of the moves don't love that terminology because it makes you go, well, I better get out of gold. Well, that's their opportunity to buy gold. Yep. Just we, like we talked about, bankers make money on the spread between when they borrow and when they loan money. Traders make money on the fluctuation. And if the market's reliably fluctuating, I can make money on the way up and on the way down, but it, but it has to be you have to have a consistent pattern, and that's exactly what traders like is, is is a pattern. They want that fluctuation. They plan the fluctuation. You can't make money if it's totally if it's totally flat or if it's totally up or totally down. It, it's still hard because everybody's in the game. You you have to have that fluctuation. When it goes down, they call it uh, shaking out the weak hands. That's when yeah. when yeah. when when the all the retail sellers are out. And that's the time to get back in. So, yeah. so with gold, I want people to, to, to just the listeners to consider, um, hey, if they bought a lot of gold in 2011, I'm not telling them to sell it. I'm not telling them to hold it. But just look, look at – consider their situation. Consider how much they put into it. Uh, look at the ratios. Uh, again, with oil, I look at oil right now. Again, it's over $100 a barrel less. And, oh, shoot, I was on the show a month ago. It was – it was like $97, um, but I think I think we're seeing a short squeeze here, just a supply issue with oil. We do have all the shale oil coming on. We have all the natural gas uh, that once they get the, the the better pipelines and liquefaction of that, I think long-term we have plentiful energy reserves for for a while now. I don't know. I, you know again, I can't make the prediction, but I, I, mm. I, think, I think we're likelier to see lower prices in oil than higher prices, and so – when I see the ratio of oil at $100 a barrel, which would relate to, say, gold at $1,500, um, or right now gold at, currently gold's at about 1320 If you divide that by 15 that puts you at like $88 oil. I think we're closer to $88 oil than we are to $1,500 gold. That's, 
my look at look at the, the market. So I, I think people need to take that in consideration. Um, but again, it's it's how much precious metals do you have, and what did you buy it for? If you bought it for security, then then you didn't lose any money. You know, I I paid I don't know seven hundred dollars last year on life insurance premium, and I didn't waste that money, right? I didn't die, but I didn't waste that money. That was that was seven hundred dollars well spent because I was protected for twelve months in case I would have had an untimely death. So if someone does have you know whatever five percent of their their wealth or something in uh, in gold or silver, and they happen to buy it all in 2011, well, maybe it's down from where it is today, but that's still their insurance policy for the future. So they don't want to just rush out and sell it when it's at its low point. Um, on the other hand, though, if they are trading it, they do need to look at these ratios and say, hey, maybe it, maybe it is time to throw in the towel and, and uh, put that money to use. And, and that's, that's kind of one of the tips I want to give people for whether we're in inflationary or a deflationary cycle, whichever it is. You can't stick your head in the sand. You can't be an ostrich. You have to get in and be actively, and, and not necessarily trading. I mean, I'm a trader. That never, not everybody can do that. But you have to be actively being productive in your life. You have, to be in, you have to be out of debt. You have to be investing in assets that are appreciating, not depreciating. So if you own a house, you're better off with a house um, you know, in a mid-sized city or out in the country that has a piece of land that, that has value to it, intrinsic value. You can grow a garden. You can, uh, you know, you can do other things with with your property as opposed to just being on a, uh, you know, little a little lot in, in the suburbs where it costs you money, where you have to water your grass, right? You're not getting any productivity out of it. You can't be an ostrich. You have to go out there and be productive because if you're not proactive, whether it's inflation or deflation, you're going to get squeezed. And, and you're going to you're going to get drastically hurt, um, particularly as we talked about with these people that are older in their 40s and 50s. Um, that productivity applies to their lifestyle as well. They have to be increasing their knowledge. They you know not sitting at home watching reality TV. They need to be learning. They need to be increasing their skills and abilities so that if they get laid off of one job, they can get another job, or you know they can they can become an entrepreneur, um, or they have a, a community and network established where they. They know people. They, and again, if they do get laid off from a, from a position, they can say, hey, I've got 10 or 15 friends I can go talk to that can maybe refer me to another job or, or you know, give me some assistance like that. Pe- people that are just you know, burying their money in the backyard or putting it under the mattress, they're going to lose either way. Absolutely, absolutely. So what, what else can people do as we kind of wrap up here, John, today uh, to help protect themselves? Uh, well, like I said, the biggest thing I think for most Americans is get out of debt. Um, you know, people people had thought in the past that hey, you know, particularly if we're in an inflationary environment, it's good to be in debt. It's never good to be in debt. It, that's that's another trick or another lie the establishment wants you to believe. So so get out of debt, build your skills. Um, you know, Jack, you talked about all the form different forms of capital uh, the other day on the show in relation to permaculture. I mean, those are those kind of things. Build their capital. Their, their, their hard, hard money capital, their, their uh, gold or precious metal capital, their relationship capital, their education capital. These are, they, they want to accumulate things that are going to gain in value, not decrease in value, um, and just um, build their communities. I mean, the things that we talk about every day as preppers are the things that we want to do going forward. You know, as you say on the show, whether, whether things get, uh, get tough or they don't, these are the fundamental things that make your life better. And those are the things they want to focus on. Um, I'd say, um, you know, focus on, on homestead and wellsteading. Whatever it is with your home, with your family, with, with building all those things up, with getting a productive piece of land, that's your homestead. And then the wellstead, 
investing in productive real estate or investing in, in stocks that are going to appreciate or, 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 you know, precious metals when the timing's right. Uh, be, be proactive. Don't, don't sit back. Don't wait, so, wait for somebody in the White House to come and help you. You know, FEMA's not going to help you in the first uh, 48 hours, right, or whatever. That's why you have a 72-hour kit. Um, the White House isn't going to help you with health care. They're not going to help you with jobs. And the, the Republicans in the House aren't going to help you, the Democrats in the Senate. It all comes to you. You, you need to be responsible for your own family and your own community. Awesome. I completely agree. And I would say the other thing that I would advise people is seriously think about developing some level of business of your own um, so that I, I would rather see a, a grown man driving a pickup truck around with a couple lawnmowers and a, weed and, a, and a blower in the back of it than working at McDonald's. I think he's better off. He's better off. That's yeah. Now, I've heard in some freaking cities now, it's so ridiculous that to do that job, you have to have a freaking landscaping <laughs> degree and a license that's $20,000 or whatever. But unless you live in one of those places, I think Phoenix is one weird place like that. I, I, I would say develop relationships with people. And if, if I'll tell you one of the most valuable things that you can be right now is a handyman. Um, I have a, a neighbor uh, whose son is kind of a jack-of-all-trades handyman, and I hire him to do things that I know how to do, but I don't have time to do. And I also hire him to do things that can kill me. I believe if something can kill me, and I'm not 100% focused and know exactly what to do, that I shouldn't touch it. So when it involves electricity, um, you know, AC out of the house, and I need some outlets or lights installed... I just, like, I'm so busy, I don't need to be messing with something that can kill me. So I hire him to do stuff like that. And pretty much anything I need done, he can do. And he stays pretty dadgone busy. He doesn't have a job. He doesn't want a job. He works for cash whenever he can. And, you know, he's got a family, and they do fairly okay for themselves. And I said, you know, have you thought about getting a job? And he's like, nope. He goes, I lost a job like six years ago. And I absolutely don't want one ever again. This is so much better. Yep. And, that, you know, last time I was on the show, we talked about trends for 2014. And I thought the biggest overall trend, really not only for the year, but really the decade, is entrepreneurship. Um, I said, I'm a late-blooming entrepreneur. I wish I'd have done it 20, 30 years ago. Uh, but it is the best thing that anyone can do in their life. And, and despite, I, you know, I talk about there could be a market collapse. There's all this overcapacity. There's all these problems. I'm over. I'm optimistic overall, and that's why I think working for yourself, there's nothing better. Um, if people focus on, like you said, the handyman thing or just whatever they have a skill at, whatever product or service that they can offer that the community needs, there, there, there will be a need for products and services no matter what happens. What, you know, there was a need for product and services in, in paleo days, and there's a need for it today. There's going to be yeah. a need for it in the, in the Jetson times. There's always a need for product and services. By being an entrepreneur, you have the highest level of freedom and liberty, and there's just more tax advantages and uh, you know, quality of life that go with it than you can ever understand if you haven't done it. And people need to just edge into it, right? They don't, they don't jump into it overnight, quit their day job, but think about how they can do that. Um, I, and the reason I'm so optimistic is because all of our wounds are self-inflicted. The, the debt, the bad government, the overregulation, all of these things could be changed with, with the stroke of a, of a pen in a few years of getting, you know, tightening the belt if we would just, you know, really live the Constitution and, and, and take responsibility for ourselves. And, and I don't necessarily think that's going to change anytime soon. I'm not optimistic enough to, to think that something good's going to happen, but 
if you're an entrepreneur, you don't have to participate. You can figure well, out a way to make go things around happen. You that's make, that's you, the big thing. You can make things happen. I know all the things you're going through with your your promo ethos and and the rules and regulations on that stuff. You know the, the qualified investors. Uh, you know, but you know what? What a disaster! There's a way. Like so, and this is like so. If I work for a company and I want to do this for the company, they're going to be like, "No, it's too much trouble." So what we found out is that what seems like the simple solution is a co-op can raise money from anybody that clearly demonstrates that they have a desire to do business with the co-op in the future. So if I sell you a prepaid membership card for like $25 that you can use to buy stuff from us in the future, even though we don't have anything yet because we're not, we're not running yet, then you're allowed to invest. So who figured that out for me? A retired CPA that wants to do something like this himself. Now, that's, that's how entrepreneurs get shit done. There's, right? there's, that, there's, a, there's a way around everything, and that's why people are way around everything. My buddy Sean Hipskin from Arkansas, who does, has done some excavator work for me, said the tax code is about 10 pages of what you have to do, and the rest of it's how to get out of it. And you want a CPA that knows the rest of it. And, and, and it, it, there's a lot of things in business like that. So, yeah, I'd say stick with the entrepreneurial spirit. And even if you're going to stay employed, I think you would agree with this too. You got to act like you're self-employed even when you have a job. Absolutely, you got to yeah. think that way. You yeah. got to think that way. You got to think. And if you think that way long enough, you'll have to be an entrepreneur. I mean, that's how I eventually yeah. became an entrepreneur because I you can't stand working for anybody else. I, I just you... say this to people: like, so when they, people get their paycheck, they feel like, well, this is my paycheck. It's not your freaking paycheck. Imagine that every week you're invoicing your employer for services rendered and they're paying you for services rendered because that's what's really happening. And the reason people get blindsided and think they have something coming to them is they've been getting a check for so long that they think it's the other way around. Like, I'm being paid because I show up. No, you're you're basically billing for your services. And, and that one little mental change, I think it will a lot of times lead people eventually to a path where they go, i got to do something for myself. Because they start to see it for what it is. Anyway, man, great stuff as always, John. I'm sure we'll have you back in the not too uh, to dis- too distant future. But uh, we got to wrap up today because I've already got guests showing up here. Thanks, Jack. I appreciate. I, w- I wish I was down there. I wish I was out at the workshop. I do want to get down for one of them. I will see you. I'll be out at Permaculture Voices next month. I'll see you awesome. out there. Awesome. Um, hey, if people check my website, uh, investablewealth.com, they'll find an article on the S&P earnings versus uh, ounces of gold. Or excuse me, ounces of silver. Check awesome. that out. I think they'll find that interesting. Excellent, excellent. And again, thank you for being with us today, John. Thank you, Jack. And folks, with that, this has been Jack Spearfoot today, along with John Pugliano, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. In our food these days, you know it's on our TVs. Sometimes we forget we are what we eat. I don't know the answer It's like there's nothing I can do It's the price we pay, I guess And we follow all the rules There's a better way to do this Let me show you a better way i
Yeah.